Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolias First. For more information, visit www.magnoliasfirst.org. I'm so glad that all of you are here as we continue our series entitled Red Letter Lessons. I want to welcome those in the Resonate service as they are joining us by live stream. As we study together the words of Jesus from the gospel accounts. And last week, we looked at the spiritual problem that I call plank eye, where we would have a, a board, a log in our eye, and yet we're trying to remove the specks in the eyes of others. And as Jesus used that powerful imagery uh, to challenge us to rather than look for the faults and the problems and the issues in others' lives, that we would let him deal with our issues. And we all agreed that all of us have issues. Our big idea last week was your issues will never come into focus as long as you're focused on someone else's issues. And so we were challenged by Jesus' words to allow the Holy Spirit to work on us and our issues, and we are all a work in progress. Uh, all of us should be a work in progress, making progress. We, we should be on a journey, a journey of growth, a journey uh, in which we are maturing. It's the, the theological term sanctification, that we're slowly but progressively, continually being conformed to the image of Christ by allowing the Holy Spirit to bring the truth of God's word into a practical application uh, in our lives as we seek to live out those truths. And so if you were not with us last week, I hope that you'll go back and listen to the podcast and uh, let that lesson speak to your, your heart. Uh, well, you know, there are some things in life uh, that are just opposite of what they seem they should be. And when I thought about that, for me, an example is backing up a trailer. Anybody else here besides me have problems backing up a trailer and resonate to? Yeah, and I know the steer from the bottom of the steering wheel, all that. I just can't do it. It's just, it's just backwards to me. And, and I don't have a trailer. I don't pull a boat or, or that that kind of thing, but if I'm ever called on to do that, I'm going to have to buy one of those fancy pickups that I see uh, advertised on TV that, you know, will do it uh, for you, because it's just backwards from how it seems it should be. Well, there are actually things like that in the Christian life that are backwards from what they seem they should be as we look through the, the context of the culture in which all of us live. And one of those kind of seemingly opposite, backwards things is the path to greatness in the Christian life. And so today we're going to learn from Jesus of what it really means to be great in the kingdom of God. So here's our big idea. The way to greatness is a willingness to serve. And we're going to spend the whole message unpacking that idea. The way to greatness is a willingness to serve. In just a moment, our main text will be out of the 13th chapter of the book of John. And so let me give you the, the context and the setting. In John 13, Jesus is meeting alone with his disciples. It is just prior to his arrest 
and his crucifixion. And he is sharing a final meal with them and he wants to impart to them some very powerful and essential spiritual truth. But the reality is the disciples are still confused about how Jesus would usher in the kingdom of God and what their role would be. They are so confused, as a matter of fact, that jealousy and bickering has broken out among this small group of the early followers of Christ. And Luke 22, verse 24, gives us a snapshot of what's going on as they are gathered there in that upper room. It says, Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. So they're going at one another. They are, they are bickering and arguing about who would be the greatest. They were envisioning themselves as great leaders with vast power and prominence in the coming kingdom of God. Going from obscure nobodies, fishermen and tax collectors, and they were just going to be the, the great and powerful leaders in the coming kingdom of God. And this had to break Jesus' heart that all of the time that they had spent together, they still didn't get it. And he knew. He knew that one would betray him. He knew that another would deny him, not once, but three times. And that the rest would all desert him in the darkest hour. And yet this is the setting of John chapter 13. So begin the text with me, please. John 13, verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. I want to fully set the context here. Jesus at this point knows that very soon, he would hang on a cross and that he would cry, it is finished. And the atoning work that he had been sent to earth to accomplish, the payment for our sins would be complete. It would be done. And though it broke his heart, those closest to him did not understand at all what was about to take place. And though he was disappointed in them, he loved them. By the way, I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm sure I must disappoint the Savior. There are times when, when I'm just not all I should be. Am I the only one in the room? No. We all do that, and yet he loves us. His love for the disciples, even though they didn't yet get it, is such a great, powerful message to us that even when we are disappointing to him, he loves us. Verse 2 says, It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Now understand, this was not like Jesus was reading a book or watching a movie going, 
huh, I wonder how this is going to turn out. He knew. He knew. He knew that he would be betrayed. He knew that he would be crucified. Verse 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. Let me try to frame this. Jesus knew that his suffering and his death were near. Jesus knew that his resurrection would prove to the world that he was deity, he was God, and he would receive the glory he was due. Jesus knew that he would then soon be ascending to the Father. Jesus also knew that someday he would return to earth and he would rule over all things in heaven and on earth. Jesus, with this full understanding, with his clear vision of the mission of the Father, wanted to teach the disciples important truth before he left planet earth. So verse 4. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now we need to understand some cultural context for the full meaning of this to come uh, into view. It was the custom when guests would come into a home that a servant of the host, if the host had a servant as a part of, of his household, would wash the feet of those guests because they would walk on dusty roads. There were no paved roads in those days and they wore open-toed sandals and so their feet would be dusty and, and dirty. And so the servant would assume that role of washing their feet. And if there was no servant, then the host would assume that role. But in this case, there was no servant and there was no host. And the, the culture was, if that was the case, then someone, one of the guests, would volunteer to assume that role and to wash the feet. But the disciples all came and settled in, and instead of thinking about what was appropriate and proper to do, and one of them stepping forward to assume that role of the servant, they were busy arguing about who was going to be the big dog in the coming kingdom of God. So there they were at the table, and nobody's feet is getting washed. No one is willing to be a servant. And Jesus, who was about to perform the ultimate act of servanthood, assumed that role. And so think about that. In a time that he could have been prideful over his coming glory, Jesus was willing to be a servant. Now, as we picture this scene, you may have seen the, the classic painting in which uh, the disciples are at the Last Supper, Jesus is in the middle, and they're all sitting at a table, and it's like they're posing for a photograph. Have you seen that painting? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the classic. Uh, the only problem is it's not biblically accurate. They didn't sit at a table that's the height of a table that we would sit at at a dinner table. 
their table was more coffee table height. And so they didn't sit with their legs and feet under it. Uh, they would sit propped up on pillows and lean on the table so their legs and their feet were extended toward the back. So all of these feet are exposed. And so picture it, it's all the disciples' dirty, stinking feet. If we were reading the King James and it were to describe it, it would say, their feet stinketh. <laughs> and so it was obvious that no one was performing this culturally appropriate role of a servant that would wash the feet. And so verse 6, as Jesus is going down the line to wash the feet of the disciples, he comes <laughs> to Simon Peter. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Well, what was your first clue, Peter? The four pairs of feet he washed before you? I mean, come on. Well, it's obvious what Jesus is doing. So, you know, you have to wonder what's going through Simon Peter's mind. Simon Peter was one of those guys whose mouth was in gear before his brain. Do you know that kind of person? Maybe you am one of those kind of people. And, and so Peter says this, and I don't know, maybe he's thinking he's the only one who recognizes that this isn't something you should let Jesus do, that, that you should say uh, something like, well, you're the Lord and Master, I, I'm just a disciple, so uh, this, this is not right, uh, this, this doesn't make sense. But Jesus replied to him in verse 7, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. Jesus is saying, it will become clear to you when I perform the greatest act of servanthood the world will ever know, it will become clear to you this issue of servanthood. And so Peter responds to him, verse 8, no, Peter protested, you will never ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. I think Jesus is saying to him, Peter, if, if you can't accept what I'm doing for you here, you won't know how to accept what I'm about to do for you on the cross. So you need to understand this is a pivotal moment for you. I heard a, a fellow pastor say that his Jewish friend said to him that the gospel just didn't make sense because it was all about somebody paying for someone else's sin, and he just thought everybody should have to pay for their own sin. And yet, the gospel is all about Jesus paying for our sin. Jesus doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that it's something that we must receive, something we cannot achieve. So when Simon Peter hears this, then he swings completely the other way. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter exclaimed. I think it means he said loudly. Then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. You know what? 
sometimes we camouflage our pride as false humility. I think that's what Peter was doing here. The Apostle Peter syndrome, the difficulty that people sometimes have to to receive a a sincere compliment and and they just want to just kind of disparage it or or somebody wants to give you a gift and you don't want to receive it or you want to pay them back immediately or, or if somebody wants to pay your check at a restaurant and you're uncomfortable with that and, and we kind of act like it's because of our humility when in reality it's all about our pride. It's all about our pride. Peter in his pride, think about it, wanted to tell Jesus how he ought to serve him. He starts with saying, no, Lord, you're doing too much. And then when Jesus explains it, then it's, no, Lord, do more. Instead of receiving the act of service as Jesus intended. So Jesus just just kind of cuts to the core issue in the beginning of verse 10. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. In other words, he's saying, Peter, this is not about getting you clean. And I've read commentators and and, and theologians about this verse, and they try to read in great symbolism, and they're smarter than I am. I'm just simple-minded enough to think Jesus is just trying to say, listen, it's God who decides what makes us clean, not us. It's God who determines how we are to become clean. And then he says at the end of verse 10, and you disciples are clean, but not all of you. In other words, you're imperfect, you're flawed, you don't yet get all of it, but but you've given me your heart, you're following me except for one of you. Verse 11, he explains, for Jesus knew who would betray him. This is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. I love the disciples because the disciples were flawed people who would fail. And you know what? So are we. Flawed people who would fail. And yet their hearts were right and they would grow. And as a matter of fact, God would grow them to the point that they would become champions for the gospel. Except for Judas. And yet though Judas would betray him, Jesus still loved him. And there's a lesson in servanthood there for us. We are to be willing to love and serve those who have ill will toward us just as Jesus did toward Judas. I mean, think about it. Jesus was fully man. Jesus could have been angry and bitter toward Judas knowing what he was about to do. It had to hurt him that Judas had spent all those many months with Jesus and he would betray him for a few pieces of silver. And yet, think about it, Jesus washed Judas' feet as well. And so the lesson I think for us is that when we refuse to retaliate against those who wish us ill or who have hurt us or who have wounded us, when we, we refuse to to want vengeance or 
or, or even the smallest degree of subtle retaliation, we are exhibiting a servant's heart just as Jesus did toward Judas. And can I tell you, I don't think there has ever been a time in American history that this has been needed more. The amount of hatred and bitterness and polarization in America, I believe, is greater than it has ever been. And this is needed among our political leaders. But can I tell you, it's also needed among Christians on social media. Uh, you may not know the story of a pastor named Jerry Falwell. Uh, Jerry Falwell, back in the 70s, pastored a, a church in Lynchburg, Virginia, that was a, uh, just a, a church that exploded for the gospel, nationwide television ministry. He, he really became kind of a Christian celebrity. Uh, he was not a perfect man or a perfect pastor. He had the Apostle Peter syndrome. He would stick his foot in his mouth every now and then. But uh, he was a champion uh, for biblical values. And uh, he founded something, some of you may recall this, called the Moral Majority years ago. He, he kind of became known as the father of religious conservatism. And uh, Jerry Falwell also established a university in Lynchburg, still going today, one of the strongest Christian universities uh, in the nation. But uh, years and years ago, uh, for their chapel service, they had a, a group of uh, students who were responsible for inviting chapel speakers. And uh, they thought it would be a, a funny joke to invite Senator Ted Kennedy. Anybody remember Ted Kennedy? He was called the liberal lion of the Senate. And his views and values was, were as polar opposite of Dr. Falwell's as it could possibly be. And they thought, ha ha, it'd be a joke to invite him to come speak at our chapel. So they sent a, a formal invitation, thought he would throw it up, uh, I mean, throw it away and, and wad it up and put it in the waste can. Guess what? He accepted. And so when the word came back that he accepted the invitation, they were like, okay, what do we do now? And they went to Dr. Falwell and he said, you treat him with kindness and grace and Christian hospitality. And so he came to Liberty University to speak and Dr. Falwell greeted him. And the strangest thing happened. Those two men who were polar opposites on moral, biblical, and political values became friends. And even though they never agreed on much of anything, they continued to correspond with one another. They invited each other to share meals in each other's homes. And they had a friendship and a mutual respect all the way to Dr. Falwell's death. Though they never agreed on a single thing. And you know what? That's what we need today. Christians who, who, can, who can disagree passionately, not budge one inch from biblical convictions, but who treat those who disagree, whether they reciprocate or not, but to treat them with the kind of kindness and grace that Jesus treated Judas that day. Verse 12, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Now, through the centuries following this night, some in the church have turned this into a a religious activity, a, a sacrament, if you will, Uh, an ordinance, uh, kind of like baptism in the Lord's Supper, this act of foot washing. And and I think they missed the point. It was not the act of foot washing that Jesus was trying to point them to. It was the spirit of humility and servanthood that motivated it, that was behind it. Because you can go through the whole act of washing people's feet and have nothing more than clean feet. Clean feet are not the issue. A clean heart is the issue. The humility and servanthood that the King of kings and Lord of lords showed to those disciples with dirty feet that night is what he wants in our hearts. Verse 16, I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. In other words, Jesus is saying, if he did not consider himself to be above such humility and servanthood, neither should we. Verse 17, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London in the 1800s, said this, it is easier for us to criticize those with dirty feet than it is for us to wash them. We are not to be those who are looking for the specks in others' eyes when we have a log in our own. We are to be those who are humble enough to whatever washing someone's feet might mean. Acts of willing service from the heart of a servant. That's what defines greatness. That's what defines greatness in the kingdom of God. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Here are the next steps. Number one, ask the Lord to show you if pride is hiding in your heart that would block your path to becoming a true servant. Ask yourself if you would have reacted like Peter reacted that day because pride is lurking down in there as a hidden barrier. Number two, and here's something very specific. This week, find someone that you can serve in a way that only Jesus gets the attention and only Jesus gets the glory. Nobody will give you an attaboy. Nobody's going to pat you on the back. Nobody's going to say, look at him or her, what a servant they are. Just find a way to serve somebody where only Jesus gets the glory. This is a powerful scene from John's gospel. But understand that after this scene, here's what happens. Judas leaves quietly to go betray Jesus And then Jesus shares a meal with those remaining disciples. We call it the Last Supper. And for the centuries since then, Christians and churches of many different kinds have celebrated this meal of remembrance. Some traditions call it the Eucharist. Some call it communion. And our tradition we typically have called it the Lord's Supper 
But we take these elements of unleavened bread and the liquid, the juice, the wine to be remembrances of the sacrifice of Jesus because on that night he told them, when you do this, do it to remember me. And so both here in the encounter service and there in the venue and the resonate service, we will partake together the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, I'm going to ask for a few moments of silent prayer, for the scripture teaches us that we are not to partake of this until our hearts are prepared, until we're ready to recognize what these symbols represent. And so after a few moments of silent prayer, I will lead in prayer here in the encounter service and then give instructions and resonate after the time of silent prayer. Pastor Jesse will voice a prayer and give instructions for our worshipers there. So for these next few moments, may we silently bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord that he might prepare us to receive these elements. Oh Lord, we know we are not worthy to receive by grace through faith the sacrifice that you made for us. To have as your free gift that which we could never have earned on our own. To be loved so unconditionally and so completely that you would give yourself that you would become that sacrificial lamb once for all time. Lord, that humbles us beyond our ability to express. And Lord, we are honored to remember your sacrifice for us. May our hearts be grateful and may they be more fully committed to follow you faithfully as you give us the wisdom and the power to do so. We love you, Lord. And we are honored to remember your sacrifice together. We pray this in your name.